This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with a civil rights lawyer and constitutional scholar, Derek Black, about his new book, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. It's a fine book, Derek, because you ask and answer the questions our politicians do their best to avoid. What is it that our schools are supposed to teach, and why aren't they doing so? Maybe you can begin by connecting the story of the past with the hope for the future. Yeah, the story of the past is that this nation was a radical idea and democracy, and that for it to survive, for it to persist uh, beyond any individual's life, there had to be an educated citizenry that could govern themselves and that could hold political leaders accountable. And we need look no further than recent times to survey real challenges, both in terms of the type of education our children are getting and the type of accountability that we have for our public leaders to think that that initial promise, that initial goal has yet to be fulfilled in America. The right to public education doesn't appear in the Constitution, but you quote Adams and Jefferson to the effect that it is the foundation of our democracy. Maybe you can, if you remember one of the phrases from Adams and or Jefferson. Yeah, I mean, I think it is both, uh, it is a foundation ideal, the ideal being that if if we really are a country governed by common people, well, not all common people are going to have the means of accessing education to vote intelligently and, and to control their lives. And so, what you have is this idea by uh, Adams actually writing the Massachusetts Constitution before we even have the United States Constitution, and he embeds in it this obligation of the state or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to forever cherish and support the public schools because he believes that will make democracy work there. And so there's there's this sort of general ideology about uh, the common man and common education, and, and we have it with many of the founding fathers. But then it gets embedded into the initial text of our laws in the Northwest Ordinance, where, um, you know, we have the original colonies, and then there's what becomes, you know, the 30-some-odd other states. Well, Congress writes in the Northwest Ordinance how we're going to divide up those states and set the rules for statehood, and says that every single town in the remaining remainder of America will be divided up into squares and the center square in each town will be reserved for public schools and the surrounding lots in those towns will be reserved to generate resources to finance them. So it is true that the word education does not appear in our U.S. Constitution. And my answer to that is because our commitment to public education actually precedes the Constitution. Yes, I mean, the square reserved for education in the middle of all the new towns. And, and that is the way things are done as the country moves west. I mean, as the original colonies expand across the Mississippi into the west, that does happen. I mean, the schoolhouse is one of the first things built. Is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, there's some fat. So, so yes, every town is, is chopped up that way. In fact, you know, I tell folks if you look at the county lines and the city lines in Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, and westward, they all look different than the original colonies. The original colonies have jagged lines, and that's because they weren't subject to Northwest Ordinance. But, but once we begin to expand, it all gets chopped up into towns, and you have these center spaces reserved for schools. And there's really striking images if you if you go back to look at them of the vast um wilderness and vast plains where one of the very first structures built to me in these places are schoolhouses you have these schoolhouses surrounded by, by nothing but land it is the thing uh, around which civilization grows and the blocks of land on the margins of the school around it are meant to provide the resources for the school and wh- what are those resources well so you know, they gridded it out into 36, 36 squares in every every town uh, westward. And so the lot six, or maybe it was 32, but lot 16 was the one for public schools. And then it said there's nine on the outer rim of the square uh, that would be used for resources. And and the idea there is, number one, you could just sell those lands to private individuals and the revenues that they generated would um, would support the public schools, or that if there was some valuable mineral on those lands, you could perpetually use those minerals or use the, you know, the grazing land, whatever it may be, to generate resources. And, you know, it's Ultimately, that's all America had in its infancy was, was land. We were, we were debt ridden and didn't, didn't have a lot of, of revenues. And so we gave what we had. You know, unfortunately, land proved to not be enough by itself. You know, there's always more land left westward uh, until you finally hit California. So it wasn't actually that valuable. Like why buy a piece of land from town if you can just, you know, do a homestead outside of it. So they had trouble making the money they needed. And so the Northwest Ordinance was not as successful as we wanted it to be. But one of the things I emphasize is not its its empirical success, but the idea behind it that Congress made this enormous commitment because of of the high place it, it held education in. And the fact that it didn't produce riches is neither here nor there. It is this symbolization of this this commitment that, that's important to me. Uh- and it's the obligation of the state, or is it the obligation of the town, or the obligation of both? Yeah. So at that early point, you know, Congress is hasn't really worked through all those details. To be quite honest, right? There, there is this sense that the American ethos is going to want these schools. They're going to, they're going to support these schools, and all we need to do is is to create a piece of land for them. And they hadn't thought through structures. You know, we're really talking about the one-room schoolhouse at that point. And there's lots of community donations that go into to making those schools work because there wasn't a tax system. So, you know, the questions you raised really hadn't been answered at that early point. And that, those sort of how do you make a, a structure of schools and how do you finance them, that really becomes the challenge of the early and mid-19th century that they really have to grapple with those as as towns become much bigger and and that original sort of saving a lot for a school was insufficient to make these schools you know run at high quality levels and does the quality of the education vary from state to state and from town to town is there a requirement to teach a standard curriculum i mean are what people are learning in kansas the same as what they're learning in nebraska 
Yeah, there was tremendous variance at that stage in, in history. I mean, in the Northeast, there's a, it's a big running start. You know, we have more population centers. We have more revenues. We have stronger state government. And so there, you know, in, in Connecticut and in Massachusetts, for instance, we see a system taking life and, and, uh, Horace Mann in the 1800s trying to, to bring some system to that. But on the frontier, it really is people kind of making it up as they go with no real rules. And even the lands themselves, to be quite honest, were mismanaged from time to time. They weren't, sometimes there was graft and corruption in terms of selling, selling those lands. So there was enormous unevenness. And then even in the Southern colonies for, for racial reasons, um, you know, slaveholders, their idea was they would educate their own white children on the plantation and they weren't interested in educating anyone else anywhere, regardless of race. And so you really don't have any sort of a, a meaningful public education system for white or blacks uh, in the South. And so it really is uneven across the United States at that early period. All right. So it's in that uneven condition prior to the Civil War. What happens as a consequence of the Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves? Yeah, I mean, there's an enormous problem, to, to state the obvious, laying on, on Congress's desk following the Civil War. And one of them is that if we're founded as a nation of, of educated citizens, while well, we have you know a couple of million brand new citizens who have been criminally denied the opportunity to read and write in the South. So that's that's an enormous challenge uh, and, and trying to bring those folks in. And so we have to find a way to, to overcome, yeah, overcome that problem. And public education is, is the solution to that problem that Congress says that we are going to mandate as a condition of readmission that these Southern states in their constitutions begin to answer the questions that, that you asked just a moment ago. Like who's going to make these decisions? Who's going to run these schools? Are they going to be uniform or uneven? So Congress places the condition of constitutional guarantees in the state constitution. Right. So if if Mississippi wants to become part of the union again, it has to guarantee public education and its constitution. So there is this radical revolution uh, uh, in a good way that happens following the Civil War to to try to address these challenges. And how well does that work? I mean, do all schools in the South, I mean, black and white uh, have the same uh, curriculum, the same quality of teaching? So, you know, they're making something out of nothing uh, at that point, uh, making schools where they never had been. So there still is unevenness. But what you do see is rapid expansion of opportunity and access. Right. And, you know, that, you know, you, you speak to curriculum. You've asked about that a couple of times. That ends up being, I will admit, an inflection point in the South because a lot of the large portion of the teachers uh, at that moment had come from the North. So they were missionary teachers. A lot of them were abolitionists. And so there was some suspicion or attempted to create suspicion that that these radical white missionary women were coming down here and teaching sort of um, you know, revolutionary ideas to children. So there was a lot of tension 
between whites in particular and the teachers as to what was being taught in those schools. But the, the, the truth is there was a lot of liberation theory, I think, that was taught in those schools by those, by those missionaries. But as, as the states commit to a constitutional system, they begin to build these structures whereby you have a state superintendent and a state school board and local school boards. You, you, you do begin to sort of develop a more routine approach to, to education. They also start building what's called normal schools and normal schools are for the training of teachers. And so, you know, they're, they're propping up these schools, you know, instantaneously in the South. Well, who's going to teach there? The idea being we will bring all of the new teachers through these normal schools so that they are at least coming to the school house with some, you know, basic level of, of competency and knowledge of what they're going to teach. So there wasn't a mandated curriculum, but there was beginning to be this centralization of the production of education that was creating more uniformity. You also begin to get the idea for segregated segregated schools. I mean, schools for blacks and schools for whites. Does that, that idea come out of the South? Well, you know, that, that's one of the most remarkable stories in the book that was news to me. And I, I am a civil rights lawyer. Maybe it shouldn't have been news to me. But in 1868, which is when most of the Southern Constitutional Conventions happened, there were debates about uh, who was going to go to these schools. And in South Carolina, there was it, the question was explicitly before them: Shall white or will white and black children go to school with one another? And the answer that that convention gave was: Yes, they will go together with one another. And that was that was a major point of contention because even some African Americans said: If if we make these schools open regardless of race, the white kids won't show up. And there were others who said, well, you know, this new America that we're embarking on with the 14th Amendment, with equal protection and these uniform systems of schools, it, it, it is incompatible with these new American ideas that somehow or another we would separate children based upon race or deny children access based upon race. So South Carolina votes on the question of whether these schools will be open to all regardless of race. And the answer uh, was resoundingly yes, they will be open to all regardless of race. And that phrase, open to all, is a key one. If you look at the state constitutions right now, you will find this phrase, open to all, repeated uh, throughout several Southern constitutions and later put into Northern constitutions. And that word open to all meant anti-discrimination, that there is no child, regardless of their socioeconomic status or race, who will be denied entry. So it's really radical that in 1868, they're talking about integrated schools. The problem is, is that radical idea, as you suggest, gets quashed during the redemption period when the former slaveholders, by violence, hook and crook, take back over Southern government and rewrite the state constitutions in the late 1800s, that they begin to put the idea of segregation into the constitution, which that was the new idea. Segregation was the new idea. They were operating against a backdrop of constitutions that said that schools would be open to all. So what happens, let's say, between 1868 and take an arbitrary date, 1900? Is that when we begin to get more and more segregated schools? Yeah, I mean, we definitely had some some segregation before the end of Reconstruction, just by nature of what people uh, do. But I've got some pictures. I didn't put them in the book. I mean, I have pictures of, of integrated schools. They say Freedman's School on the front, and there are white children and African-American children sitting in front of those schools. So we, we definitely had integrated schools before that. But 
as we move into the post-Reconstruction era, right, sort of in the late 1870s and thereon, we, we get this push for more and more segregation. And, and the major focal point is in 1890 when Mississippi says, we want to rewrite our Constitution. And they call a new constitutional convention. And they stand up. Uh, the speaker or the leader of the convention speak, stands up at the very beginning and says, we've come here for one reason, and it is to disenfranchise the Negro. And they start on it. And by disenfranchise, they did not mean to simply take away uh, access to the ballot box. They meant to undermine access to education because they understood that those two things worked in conjunction with one another. Um, and so that's what they do. They began to make it harder to vote. And they began to make it harder for African-Americans to finance education or local communities, moving the, the, the funding responsibility away from the state house down to the local level, right, so that more discrimination could occur. And then also to mandate that those schools be racially segregated. So if we can mandate the racial segregation of children, we can also begin to segregate the funds with which we educate those children. So that is the Mississippi plan. Right to deny the right to vote or to come up with measures for that, including you know literacy tests. Right, if we can deny the right to education and then make literacy a condition of voting, well, that that's going to exclude more voters. And so those two things uh, happen beginning there, and then South Carolina follows suit in 1901, and a number of other southern states uh, do the same thing in the early 1900s. So we go from uh, a set of southern constitutions that guarantee. Uh, the right to vote to all and public schools open to all to something entirely different. That's sort of the opposite of those two things. What is happening, at, meanwhile, in the North and West? Are public schools open to blacks in, let's say, Massachusetts and Connecticut and Colorado and Kansas? And Yeah, I mean, you know, the, there was segregation and integration, I should say, in those places. You know, Charles Sumner, prior to the 14th Amendment, so prior to the end of the Civil War, actually had taken a, a case to the Massachusetts Supreme Court challenging racial segregation in the Boston schools. And the Massachusetts courts rule against Charles Sumner and um, and say, no, you know, Boston can segregate its schools. So you do have segregation in places like Boston. Uh, ironically enough, you know, Sumner is one of the, the leading characters in the expansion of the right to education in the South and pushing the South to make it integrated uh, education. So he loses that battle, ironically enough, in Massachusetts, but his foot soldiers win that battle in places like South Carolina. You asked about Kansas. You know, Kansas uh, and Missouri, I think, uh, are both sort of interesting in that you have segregation, but you also have some some random occurrences where people are saying, oh, wait a minute, there's no, you know, if there's no other school, but if there's only one school, maybe you can't do that or maybe you can't segregate taxes. So there's a little bit of unevenness, but Plessy versus Ferguson, which happens in 1895, you know, gets the United States Supreme Court gives the blessing to separate but equal. Equal, and once the United States Supreme Court gives the blessing to this to this new method of separate but equal, um, there's no holding back, and it expands. But prior to Plessy, there there were questions, and even in the Mississippi uh, Mississippi Constitutional Convention in 1890, there was questions about how far they could go without getting into trouble with the federal government. 
And what Plessy versus Ferguson tells the states is there's no limit to how far you can go in terms of separate but equal. The, the, the Supreme Court's not going to stop you. And so at that point, you know, segregation and violence overtake, you know, everything that uh, Reconstruction had achieved. Take us briefly up to through the first half of the 20th century and to Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and 65. What happens over that period? I mean, there's still schools are still segregated up until Brown versus Board of Education, right? Yeah, I mean, 1900 to 1950 is the dark ages on, on, on both educational equality and segregation, because as I said, you know, the, the Supreme Court had opened up to that. And so you have in the South places where, um, you know, white children are getting $12 for every $1 and, and education spending that African American children get. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's almost unthinkable that you could have, you know, that type of exponential difference in terms of inequality and no one say anything about it. And you had African Americans suing and challenging this type of behavior. You know, literally there was a, there, in a case Cummings, uh, out of Georgia, um, the, during one of the economic downturns, uh, Georgia or this local school district said that they, they couldn't afford to operate both an African American and a white high school. So they just close the African-American school altogether. And the only thing they operate is a white high school. And that case goes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, you know, there's economic struggles, et cetera, et cetera. And here, you know, local government had no choice. So we literally have the United States Supreme Court saying it's okay to <laughs> deny African-Americans any high school education at the same time you're giving it to whites. So it just doesn't get much worse than that. But the NAACP in, in the 30s um, is, says we've got to come up with a legal strategy. And I think it's actually worth reflecting for a moment, you know, as a civil rights lawyer, you know, we think about the changes happening on the Supreme Court now and people talk about, you know, how, how bad it is and how terrible things it is. And, you know, you just put yourself in the shoes of the NAACP in the 30s and 40s, and you gotta, you gotta think that they would take our situation for theirs any day of the week in terms of the composition of the court. So they begin to fight and to litigate with a very careful strategy as to how they are going to undo uh, this doctrine of separate but equal. And one of the key ideas that they use, they don't sort of attack racial segregation uh, in principle, right? The, the country's too racist. It's too segregated to do that. They don't demand full equality in all respects. They start to talk about democracy again. They start to talk about those same things that Jefferson and Adams and Sumner and, and various other leaders during Reconstruction had said and said, look, education is the gateway to citizenship. So whatever you think about black folks or whatever you think about equality, black folks are citizens in the United States of America. And we cannot run a system of education that denies them entryway into full citizenship. So there's all these early arguments about how segregation in schools and schools alone, forget the train cars, forget voting, but in schools, is sort of a sickness on democracy itself and it is keeping democracy from working. And in fact, one of the early cases um, challenges segregation 
uh, and higher education for public school teachers. They say, look, if what we're doing is training everyone to be citizens, we can't have African-Americans over here getting inferior, you know, PhDs in education and whites over here getting a different one, right? We have to have an even playing field. And that idea starts to resonate with the courts. Like they're not against segregation overall, but this idea of education as a starting equal playing field for democracy is something that they begin to get traction with. And then, of course, in Brown, you know, the famous lines in Brown is that, um, you know, public education is the very foundation of good citizenship. And it is it is uh, impossible to imagine that a child uh, could have an equal start in life if denied access to education. And that is the sort of ideological center of the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education. And so having said that about education, they say we must declare. Right segregation itself, at least in schools, to be unconstitutional. This is what is so, to my mind, good about your book, which is that you make the question bigger than the race question. It, it's bigger than black and white. It, it, it's got to do with democracy. It's rich versus poor. And as we, over the last 50 years, have drifted away from our faith in democracy and the common good, and we've drifted in the direction of individualism and private property. That is the price that is being paid by the by our schools. I mean, our the rich are no longer willing or or less willing to uh, help the poor. Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on a, on a really key point here, which is that race is part of a much bigger American story. So race has been the lever to create problems. But to go back to, to Adams, right? Um, Adams says we have to create a system of schools in Massachusetts in which the, the rich and the poor go to school together, right? And he says we want to build the finest education system the world has ever seen so that all can come together, right, with this common experience. So it's this idea that's this place that we come together. And of course, race is, is another slice of that. Well, we might also note, and I talk about it in the book, is that, you know, Pennsylvania had had some public schools prior to the 1870s mandated in their state constitution. But those public schools are what we call pauper schools, for the poor children. And so what the delegates in, in 1872 and 73 said is that if Pennsylvania is going to have a system of public schools, it can't just be for poor kids. And we actually can't even continue to operate pauper schools anymore. We have to have one system of schools and one system only, and it has to be for all. Otherwise, it will fail. It will fail because it will be lacking of political power or political incentives, political will. It'll be lacking because of the divisions amongst communities where people aren't coming together. And so we've actually tried. The point is we've tried this system of public schools for poor kids before, and it just did not work. And that's what's so troubling about today, just to move us forward briefly, is this idea that we will move towards a private system with vouchers and somehow that's going to fix our problems. We've done this before and it just didn't work. And we chose the system we have now, which is public education for all rich, poor, white, black, you know, uh, regardless of ethnicity, race, sex, gender. We did that because those other theories just didn't work to make the type of America that our founders wanted us to have. 
But why, I mean, we have spent, I think, since 1965, something like $30 trillion on trying to improve our schools. And then, you know, every year or so, you somebody comes out with a report saying that 45% of the American public is illiterate and college students don't know the difference between the Civil War and the Revolutionary War and the uh, teachers are not uh, teaching and half the American people don't know that the earth revolves around the sun. I mean, I mean I've been reading reports like that, you know, for 40 years. I mean, and why is that so? I mean, I, I, the thing that's interesting to me and, and so important about your book is that we, money is not the answer. Well, yeah, there's so much embedded in your question. It reminds me of, of, of the top of the top of the program when we began, uh, well, what they should be teaching or maybe what they're not teaching. And I think one answer I have to your question is that we do not teach citizenship in our schools. And by citizenship, I don't mean we don't teach civics. We, we don't do that very well either. But we actually do not educate our children for citizenship. We increasingly educate them or try to educate them for a test or for a vocation or for a job or for college, but we don't educate them for citizenship. And that's problematic for a few reasons. I think it's it's problematic, you know, in that it, it doesn't educate the soul to use that, that type of a word, that there's something about the, the human experience that isn't just about, you know, learning stuff that's on a you know, standardized exam that you bubble in A, B, and C, that it is an experience of citizenship. Um, so I think that, you know, when you ask why don't they, you know, know why we have three branches of government and that, you know, do they believe in the First Amendment? Well, I think that's because we're not educating for citizenship. As the other question about money, you know, part of the answer there is that we've tried to spend our way out of segregation, that somehow or another we have thought or have been okay over the last 40 years of resegregation thinking, well, we'll accept segregation. Let's just try to make things separate but equal again. And no matter how much money, I shouldn't say no matter how much, there surely is some amount of money that, that, that would overcome those. But we are trying to overcome segregation with more money. And that's very inefficient, right? Which is to say, let's, let's keep these kids, you know, trapped in these communities or, or sort of siloed over there, and we'll send them what resources we think are necessary to overcome that exclusion. Um, that creates problems with teachers, to, to, to be quite honest, right? So that now we have a problem of how do we move a workforce to these sort of high-need schools? You know, the data and the surveys show us that even for substantial pay bumps, our highest quality teachers won't Go teach those highest need students. So by leaving segregation in place, we are making it very difficult to employ equal teaching resources to everyone. And then, of course, we're also making it very difficult to find that that common ground that you and I were speaking about earlier, where we can have a politics that supports full fairly funded education in all the communities. I mean, where is the political support, to be quite honest, for delivering all the resources that the children of, of Newark, New Jersey need, or the children of Chicago need, or the children of New York City, or you know, go on and on down? Where is that political support when all the power brokers go to school somewhere else and that they see this as a zero-sum game? So, you know, I think there's there's... 10 different sort of angles we can come at this problem that you raised. Money does matter to educational outcomes, 
but so does segregation. What kind of an answer to the problem is the charter school? Well, the charter school is a cynical answer, I believe, and it's got a varied constituency that, that draws in disadvantaged communities. So let me just begin by saying this. There are minority communities across this country, both in the South and in the North, who have never one day in the entire history of America have had a public education system that fully responds to their needs. And for some white civil rights lawyer to say, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. I promise you we're going to get there. The idea America's going to get there. That is no solace to a family who's never been served by the public education system. Why would they believe the state public education system would ever come to their needs? It hasn't done it before. So I fully understand those families that go, I just need to try something else. I need an option. Right? I cannot begrudge those families. So we've got that going on. But the cynicism which, which I reference is that the folks that are primarily pushing this agenda are corporate interests, right? That see that there is money to be made off of public education, that realize that some students cost more to educate than other students. And if we can take the ones that cost less to educate and still get the same amount of money, we can generate a profit, right? We've also got cynicism in North Carolina. I point that out in the book where North Carolina has one of the most had had one of the most stable, integrated uh, school systems in the history of this country. It was not perfect, but it was the one is the most integrated. So I find what charter schools have become there is a dissent option, not for African-American communities that haven't been served, but rather for white families who don't want to be part of integrated schooling. So there we have a system that's allowing uh, folks to exit from the public system because they reject these common values that, that we've been discussing. And uh, ultimately, we also have this bigger corporate interest that wants to reduce the cost of delivering public education. And if we can shift the financial responsibility away from our traditional public system to a charter system or a voucher system, well, their taxes are going to be lowered. And there's a lot of folks that just you know, if you're talking about big government at the federal level, we're talking about Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. If you're talking about big government at the local level, we're talking about police and schools. And really, we're talking about schools. And I don't, I, that's not the right phrase to me. You know, I don't think of public schools as being big government. But those people who hate and attack big government at the local level, well, they're, they're attacking public education. And so this is an ideology that has very little to do with quality education for all. It has something to do with taxes and government or segregation and reducing costs. And so that's where the cynical piece is. They're selling a pipe dream to disadvantaged communities, promising that this charter system will be better. But in fact, the reason why they're pursuing that is not to actually to deliver better educational opportunity to these children, but rather to pursue these other agendas that I just described. All right, let's, let's come to... And then what do you foresee for the future? I mean, what are the, what are the stakes? I mean, we're fooling around with our public education system. And we're playing for very high stakes. Yeah, the stakes, you know, as I put on the cover of the book, uh, are the, the, the assault on democracy, right? If, if, we, if we believe or I should say, if we know our history, that our public schools have been the means through which we have expanded citizenship, 
And we have expanded uh, intelligent voting. And in fact, when we've expanded voting, we've expanded education at the same time. Like that is America's history. So if you look at look at today and say we're shrinking public education at the same time that some communities try to make it harder to vote, try to exclude people from the ballot box, right? That what we, we may very well have, or what I say the threat is, is that we are shrinking democracy itself. We are shrinking the capacity of average folks to engage in self-government. And if we continue to do that, right, we're going to have something that, that, that looks less like democracy than what we have right now. I mean, maybe what we have right now isn't perfect democracy, but it can get worse. And so that's my fear that we, we ruin the common ground. We ruin the commitment to public institutions that bring us together. And we wake up one day with something that, that doesn't look like it's moving anywhere closer to the vision of our founding fathers. And that it should be frightening. And the other place that we're moving to is, is more segregation. We talked about charters and vouchers, and I'll, I'll wrap it up. But simply to say that if, if we allow the private system to determine or allow private choices to completely determine where children go to school and what type of opportunities they have, what we're going to have is schools for African-American poor kids, schools for you know, white kids, and they may even break down into different religious groups. And we're going to go to our each, to our separate silos. And there's going to be different quality in all of those. And I just don't know how in a nation as diverse as America, we find common ground when we eliminate the proving grounds through which children normally find that common ground. Last question. Do you see hope anywhere on a horizon? Well, in the book, I talk a lot about the fact that what we we had tens of thousands of people take to the streets across this nation over the last two years before the pandemic, because they finally began to sense these things that I'm talking about. That they they thought something wasn't right in Kansas, so to speak. That that there was an attack on public education that just didn't make sense to them. And so, in Arizona, fifty thousand people right marching on the state capitol. North Carolina, 20,000 people two years in a row, right? These are, these are not, you know, bastions of, of liberal society, right? And, law, and West Virginia is where it all started. So the fact that we have, you know, people in deep red states, West Virginia, Oklahoma, and elsewhere coming out to protest for public education gives me a tremendous amount of, of faith that, that this American idea resonates with regular folks, uh, and it will continue to resonate with them. When you look at public polling data, the problem isn't what regular folks think about public education. The problem is, is the people that they are electing to represent them in the state capitals are acting contrary to their constituents' interests. So I have faith in the people of America. Uh, I have faith that, that they that they do have and will have uh, reason to call their public officials to account. But I think we have to have honest conversations like the one we're having right now so that they understand that, you know what, you can't trust everyone to protect public education. You know, for most of our history, Republican or Democrat, there has been this commitment. And we have now fallen to a position where not all politicians uh, support public education. So so voters have really got to start paying attention to that issue because the private interests, the lobbying interests, are they're out there to, to take our public schools away from us. Well, listen, I, I, I thank you, Derek Black, for talking with us today. I mean, your book, Schoolhouse Burning, is a fine book and asks the right questions. And I hope that we can have more conversations with more people like the one we've just had. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a, been a delight to talk through these things. 
Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.